My name is Dr. Nate Shanock. And my name is Merrick Egbert. This is the official podcast of the Ellis for Autism Foundation for Autism. We call our podcast this because it's a play on our foundation's name, and Merrick and I are both terrible golfers. But we love how golf has become such a transformative tool to helping people with autism. When I'm not a part of the podcast, I'm a member of our growing research team and a tennis coach. And when I'm not part of the podcast, I'm an administrative assistant filling in the gaps of each department like glue. I'm also autistic. This is our fourth episode, AAC Strategies and Systems in Autism. What we hope to do is to present news and updates about our foundation, interviews or feature stories to play a big role with us and with the community as a whole. Speaking of which, we also have our bum 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 today in the world of autism segment, where we posit the news and current events reflective of the world we live in today. Nate, can you give us any news and updates about the foundation? It would be my pleasure. Our virtual summer camp has been on a roll all summer. Kelly Couts and the rest of the staff and volunteers have been doing an incredible job of keeping the program educational, entertaining, and of course, fun for our participants, all the while using a virtual platform. Each session is focused on a different location around the globe and the culture of the people who live in that region. If you or someone you know would like to be a part of the next adventure, please contact Kelly for additional information. Kudos to Trudy Zayak and the rest of the adult services team as well for continuing to provide stellar programming and to Dr. Christine Hansberger, Erin Lozat, who we're interviewing today, and the rest of our clinicians for continuing to positively impact the lives of our clients. In other news, it's your lucky day. We are hosting our first ever virtual poker tournament with the opportunity to win lots of great prizes and to donate to our foundation. Don't have much of a poker face? No problem. You can also participate in a virtual raffle. For more information on this, you can see the link in our show notes. Lastly, our own Corey Lewis and his wife, Tonya, are graciously helping to care for their late friend's five children. We at the foundation fully support Corey and his family in this mission and if you would like to support them as well, we have linked their GoFundMe page in the show notes for today. Corey, our thoughts and best wishes go out to you and your family at this time. We got your back. So. Okay, so as promised, we are here with, with our Director of Clinical Services, Aaron Lozat. And before we get into the topic of, of AAC, I would like to just ask you, Erin, how would you describe your role in the foundation? It's a great question, Nate. My role in the foundation is definitely multifaceted. I have the privilege of overseeing all of our clinical services across disciplines from essentially birth to adulthood. While I still get to provide direct services and support to families and clients and professionals from around the world, so somewhat of the the best of the best of everything. Um, as a director, though, I also take on obviously many administrative roles to ensure our programs and services continue to meet only the highest quality 
my goal really in my role is to be a resource, a mentor and a source of support to the staff, to um, all the families and our clients. And in essence, I think to be an agent of change for individuals with autism. That's great. Sounds like you're wearing many hats in your role. Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> and I was also curious, what is your past experiences uh, been like when it comes to autism and, and basically what has inspired you to work in this field? Gosh, well, so to, what has inspired me to work in this field, I guess I can answer first and then maybe tag on what are my experiences. Um, actually, a little boy named Kyle, he was a kindergartner over almost like 23, 24 years ago now, and a little girl named Courtney were probably the two children diagnosed with autism that I ended up meeting and having an opportunity and the privilege of working with that inspired me to stay in the field and to learn everything that I could learn about autism. Um, they uh, were, you know, they had fascinating brains and they were unique and brilliant children that seemed to be very misunderstood by many. And I was bound and determined um, to figure out a way to have them respect me and for me to understand them. And I did, um, and I, there was no stopping me from there. I, I sought out opportunities to work with individuals with autism from that point on. I also feel that um, I've been, I don't know if it's lucky or hard work, I can't tell which word is best to use, but I have been able to be taught by who I consider the most talented, inspirational, um, and well-respected professionals in the field of autism throughout my career. And so I, uh, I really, in all honesty, Nate, I, I often feel most comfortable in the presence of people with autism. I think that people with autism make so much sense and make so much more sense of the world than we do without autism. Um, and my experience with autism in a nutshell has been extremely positive. It's really been life-changing. Um, I know that it's probably a trite type of phrase, but I feel that I've become a better person learning about autism, interacting with individuals with autism spectrum disorder and being challenged by individuals that maybe learn differently, that think differently to be, it's really broadened my uh, scope of practice and my um, perceptions in life. And um, now in my personal life, uh, it's coming back, um, you know, to support me in some really challenging times because of the skills that I've learned and the lessons that I've been taught by people on the autism spectrum. So interesting and inspiring to hear your experience and, and your perspective on working in this field. Um, so last thing I was wondering is it from your experience, because I know you've been doing this for a little bit of time now. <laughs> How has the, the clinical work relating to autism, how has it evolved over the, the years? So my perspective and I guess experience, what I've lived has been that clinical work has evolved from initially this traditional expert model where you had isolated providers that were considered experts that you know, knew everything about their one discipline and it, it was you know, just like a doctor, right? You, doctor says this, this is what it is, and you are okay with it. There's no questions asked. 
um, to really now more of a collaborative coaching, collaborative coaching model, I would say, where a clinician is essentially a coach or guide to the individual with uh, autism spectrum disorder or any really developmental disability and their family. Um, and the, essentially what I, I feel like has happened is the intervention teams to include families and uh, medical professionals and educators, not just the therapists, bec have become uh, essentially an ecosystem of support for an individual with autism and their family and the individual with autism really being in the middle and the nucleus of this ecosystem and then all these other arms of the ecosystem being the support that surround that person and everybody works interactively. Um, and you, I think it's also evolved in the sense that we do a lot more cross training and we, I mean, traditionally years ago, we, I was part of a multidisciplinary team, which was very innovative at the time. And now you see a lot of interdisciplinary teams, but more so than, than not, especially in a therapeutic world, maybe not as much medically, we're seeing transdisciplinary teams are really crossing over and, and having the family feel like they have one lead that's guiding them and everybody's very well trained, no matter what, we're all aligned. And now in the past, you know, a family was really their own family navigator through services and supports. And now there's really robust programs of coordination of care and you can actually, you know, seek out a family navigator to help guide you through this journey and this process. And so we're really, we're really now in a place where we have these specialized family-centered medical homes. And um, I definitely think this is gonna continue to be the way we move forward as we now know with research that it is definitely best practice and makes a difference in the outcomes we see in, in individuals with autism and their families. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited about it. I like being a partner to a family and a person versus an expert and, and always having to take the lead or manage everything individually. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it's great to hear how uh, the clinical work has progressed. And, and as usual, the team approach is typically better than the individual, right? Yeah, I think we're, we're becoming kind of you know, we're, we're aligning with professional sports. <laughs> it's always worked this model for years and years. And people, you know, people in sports always worked interactively together and support each other and can read it each other's role and know what the next pass, let's say, is going to be. And uh, I think it's, we've been slow to the punch in the therapeutic or medical world, but we're getting there. <laughs> sports metaphors always work well with us. I know, I was... Uh, I was thinking about the for autism and the golf, you know, analogy. And, and I think I'm going to live in your bubble with being probably one of the worst golfers <laughs> working at Ells for Autism. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, let's get focused on AAC strategies and systems. For, so for anyone who is not familiar with the concept, what exactly are AAC strategies and systems? Well, by definition, Merrick of the American Speech and Hearing Association, or what's commonly known as ASHA, um, AAC includes all the ways that we share ideas and feelings without using what we would call verbal or oral language. Um, AAC can um, 
you know, can be anything, right, from technology or, or anything without technology. So from, it could be aided or unaided, essentially. So using your body to supplement or augment your verbal or oral language or having something outside of your body to do that. And there's a range of no tech to mid tech to high tech systems and strategies. Um, AAC or augmentative and alternative communication is augmentative when it's used to supplement existing speech and it's alternative when it's used to uh, replace, if you will, speech that's absent or not functional. The thing that I think that people don't always realize and that's very misunderstood in the field is that you can combine many different types of augmentative and alternative communication systems and strategies together to give this total communication approach. And that AAC is appropriate and recommended whenever someone cannot rely on their verbal or oral language skills to meet all of their daily needs. It's not just when somebody doesn't have the ability to to speak, but when, even if you're highly verbal, but you're unable to rely on your, your language, you know, your oral language to meet all of your daily needs, even if it's only in those moments of stress, then it would still be beneficial in a recommended evidence-based practice. Thank you, that was very informative. Thanks, Mary. So what is your experience like with AAC? Wow, um, my experience with AAC has definitely been life-changing. Um, watching a child and actually multiple individuals go from only communicating through what some would call maladaptive behaviors or sensory-based behaviors, depending on the child or the person, to developing sophisticated language sets and, and social communication skills. Watching a parent go from never having their child call them by name to never having their child stop talking um, and even for those individuals, Merrick, that may always rely, have a need to always rely on some type of augmentative and alternative communication as their primary mode of communication, the results really, in my experience, have been insurmountable. When AAC is in place um, and it's, you know, someone has done an assessment, they've done a feature matching process, they've, you know, the supports and systems are a match to that person and can grow with the individual in a manner that is, um, you know, matches that individual's development and learning style, that the teaching of AAC, the person is trained, the family and the teams are trained. Really, AAC supports a person's social, emotional, and, and mental health uh, competencies. And we, we have to remember that having a voice is a birthright and support generates ability. And so, you know, providing someone with a way to communicate faster, more efficiently, so they can be have a greater audience to be understood by anyone, it's going to really help ensure positive outcomes in that person's life, um, allow them to fulfill their quality life indicators, and really set them up for success. And you know, if you're looking at the, if you're looking at the outcomes of adults with autism specifically right now, um, they're still not great. And if you look at some of the greatest barriers to adults fulfilling these quality of life indicators from going to work, feeling successful, being a productive person in the community and in society. Oftentimes, social communication skills or being able to have a voice is one of the greatest barriers. And so if we can change that for people and educate 
those more people on AAC since it's somewhat of a subspecialty like you're doing with the you know your blog and these podcasts I mean really it's going to be it's going to be a game changer America I'm really so impressed by this I want to say thank you yeah I definitely agree um and thank you for the compliments um where shall people go to learn more about AAC so that's such a great question, Merrick, because um, just for, I have my, I know what the sites are, but just for, you know, for the purpose of this experience, I Google just to see what would come up these days. And there are so many different things that pop up when you put in a search of AAC. And really the primary sites that we give individuals the most up-to-date and, and evidence-based information, the science, right, behind AAC would be ASHA, the American Speech and Hearing Association, so ASHA.org. Um, there is an entire AAC um, research journal that if you're into reading research articles, you could subscribe to and get all the journals. It's called Augmentative and Alternative Communication. Um, uh, there's a wonderful website that's essentially a, uh, uh, I guess, a repository for um, uh, really good information on augmentative and alternative communication for teachers, for parents, for professionals, it goes across the board in complexity, and it's very user-friendly, the site. It's called Practical AAC, um, and it's practical, P-R-A-A-C-T-I-C-A-L-A-A-C.org, and it was developed by Dr. Carol Zingari, who is a well-respected expert in the field and very well-published in autism and in AAC. She's actually uh, my mentor in the field. Um, we also have in Florida an organization called FAST. It's F-A-A-S-T, the Florida Assistive Technology Program. And they have an, a very, very uh, robust website. They also have a great lending library. So if somebody needs to do, to try AAC, different devices, different systems, switches, um, FAST is a, is a really wonderful organization in Florida that I don't think is utilized um, to the level that it should be. Uh, I, I found a wonderful website called aacommunity.net that I had not known about, and it's really a collaboration between Temple University and Pennsylvania Department of Human Services, Merrick, and um, they had wonderful resources, even though they're based out of services and supports in Pennsylvania, in general, their AAC information was sound, a stellar website, and then just a few other places that I think we can't forget is that AAC has now been added to the evidence, the 2020 evidence-based practices document for evidence-based practices for autism um, spectrum disorder in young children, adolescents, and adults. That was developed by University of North Carolina, Frank Porter Graham's, uh, you know, program and department. It's a free publication that people can Google and it goes over then all the research that supports AAC in a very succinct way. Um, and families, obviously, if they're interested in, in getting their children evaluated and they're in the public school system, every county has an assistive technology team that they can contact. And luckily, we at Ells for Autism and our free webinar, um, our free webinars on, on our resource pages online have, I think now, two full AAC um, talks and we have in the communication talks AAC concepts embedded. So I think there's lots of places that are very accessible for all individuals that 
different levels of support need to gather information. Okay, we want to thank you uh, for taking your busy time uh, for, to uh, address our questions and to be a part of this podcast. And we both wish you, of course, the best in what you do for us and your, uh, what we would like to call your clinical journey. Mary, thank so. you so much. This is definitely an honor. And I can't wait to see the whole podcast when it's done. Uh, again, both you and Nate are really putting your stamp um, and, uh, on, on, in this field and becoming trailblazers for so many to share information that's very often behind the scenes. So uh, appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was great having one of the heroes of the foundation on. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You're going to make me blush. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye. So, as always, it's time to go over today in the world of autism, bum, bum, bum. Starting with my co-host, Dr. Nate Chinock, and his fantastic research-oriented topics. Okay. So the first topic that I'd like to cover today is a recent article related to eye gaze and saccade patterns in individuals with autism. So there's been uh, a common finding that individuals with autism have a difficult time adjusting their gaze to take in all the details of a scene or environment. The rapid shifts in gaze that are necessary to take in this info are called saccades and they have been shown to be affected in individuals with autism, as I mentioned. A recently published study from Nico Bast and his colleagues at the Goethe University uh, of Frankfurt, Germany, sought to further explore the dynamics of visual exploration during the viewing of both naturalistic videos with humans and also videos of nature that uh, did not feature humans. So it was a well-designed study that was conducted on 142 individuals with ASD and 142 controls. All the participants were between the ages of six and 30 years old. So the setup was that while participants were watching videos of naturalistic scenes that had people interacting and some scenes that just featured nature, the experimenter measured the participants pupil dilation and time spent fixating on a particular point as well as the duration and distance of their saccades and they measured all of this by using an eye tracking device which we are doing a bit of this at the foundation and some of our projects to look at eye tracking measurements as a marker for early detection of autism but anyways the key finding of this study was that the researchers did not find group differences regarding fixation and pupil dilation characteristics. However, in the ASD group, there was decreased saccade duration and amplitude, which was consistent across the videos that included humans and the ones that did not include humans. So this finding generalized to both types of videos. 
to some degree, the finding that saccade duration, uh, the length of saccades and amplitude, the strength of saccades, that they were um, impaired, to some degree it challenges the widely accepted view that autistic individuals avoid looking at social stimuli due to low social motivation and impaired reward systems. However, the finding here does not discount that perspective, and it's likely the case that both of these effects are playing an interactive role to influence the eye um, tracking and eye contact uh, patterns that we see in autism. So the authors concluded that this finding relates to difficulties with exogenous attention or the ability to shift attention from one point to another and it may reflect abnormal development of a particular uh, brain network, which is in the panocerebellar area uh, that is made up of circuits in both the pons and cerebellum areas of the brain that are involved in our involuntary movements, like eye saccades and eye tracking. The authors hope to study the exact characteristics of ASD that are implicated by this altered saccade response. One promising area of research could be the development of computerized training programs to advance this skill. All and right. So this research seems to be in line with research on structure and object fixation in the ages of people with autism. In a way, it is very interesting to read about it. If you were to develop this skill in individuals with autism, how would you use computerized training programs to do it? And how likely do you think that this could be developed without computers? That's an excellent question. And I'm glad that you brought this up. There are a lot of uh, independent research projects at the moment that are focusing on developing computerized training to assist with this skill. And I, I believe that most of this research is being driven by a team in, in Japan. Um, and the idea, the technology behind this is very similar to neurofeedback, if anyone is familiar with that uh, type of training. So basically in neurofeedback, when a participant increases or decreases their brain activity to the desired uh, direction, they are given some sort of reinforcement. And this could be in the form of a tone, like uh, applause or a bell ringing. It could also be in the form of a visual, like uh, a character, uh, a Pac-Man character, let's say, moving faster along the screen uh, as the desired direction of brain activity is achieved. So something similar is being um, developed with the training of, of eye saccades. So when saccades are increased in their duration and their amplitude, some sort of reinforcement is being provided in these types of training programs. Um, I, as far as development without computers, I think this could be a little bit more challenging since, you know, to identify one's saccade patterns, it's very important to have an eye tracking device. And oftentimes um, these trainings are, you know, um, directed around 
the use of an eye tracking device. Thank you for the information. Yeah, of course. So one more recent uh, study that I'd like to cover before I hand it over to my, my co-host here is related to our topic of the day. This was a meta-analysis uh, which was recently published. And again, a meta-analysis is an analysis that's done on a large amount of studies, basically to look at the overall pattern and results across these studies. And this was a meta-analysis featuring 21 single subject studies, looking at the effectiveness of AAC, which again is augmentative and alternative communication. It was looking at the effectiveness of these intervention approaches. The aim of these studies was to improve social interaction and communication skills amongst participants. Now, the hallmark finding here was that they found two forms of AAC that produce particularly strong effect sizes compared to other devices. The first one was PECS, or Picture Exchange Communication Systems, which allow, the com which allow communication through pictures and basically pointing to pictures to indicate how someone is feeling or the activity that they want to do. And the second one was SGDs or speech generating devices, which allow um, selection of phrases or words to meet one's needs. And these were equally effective techniques um, and both very advantage for teaching social communication skills. In contrast, other techniques like manual sign application did not reach the same threshold of effectiveness. It should be noted that the majority of participants in this study were in the preschool or elementary age range, which, as we know, during these years, we're a little bit more uh, able to adapt our behaviors. And this is, you know, due in part to the neuroplasticity that's seen during these years and that our brain is still very much developing. Um, and so of course, I would recommend more research on this topic with you know, uh, more diverse age ranges and also studying uh, the effects of AAC across development. So I would now like to turn it over to my co-host, Merrick, for his relevant current stories about autism. All right, so my first story is about media representation. So in January of this year on the subscription service, Disney Plus, Pixar released a new short film called Loop, their first animated film featuring a nonverbal character with autism who uses a cell phone as a way to communicate with others. The film is around a boy named Marcus who has to partner up with Renee, a nonverbal autistic girl, to go canoeing. While Marcus is able to verbalize his wants and needs, Renee has to use her nonverbal skills to try to get through to Marcus so that they can have a connection together while on a canoe. In the end, Marcus makes a new friend in Renee, and after a crisis in a tunnel, they end up having an enjoyable time canoeing. The short emphasizes that in some situations, teamwork is not optional 
and even the individuals with the most difficulty communicating are trying their best to communicate their wants and needs in some way, and we have to cooperate with all individuals, whatever their communication abilities are, to be able to create a better world. So, uh, what is your opinion on media representation of individuals with autism, Nate? That's an interesting question. I think to this point, maybe the media representation of individuals with autism has been a little underrepresented, but I think that uh, short films like Loop and we were also talking a couple weeks ago about the addition of uh, a show, a TV show on Amazon Prime featuring um, actors with autism uh, playing uh, individuals with autism trying to navigate through their 20s. So I think it's definitely becoming more mainstream and I think it is becoming more, uh, the depictions are becoming more accurate from my perspective at least, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this as well, Merrick. So how do you feel about the media representation of individuals with autism? And do you think that Loop is a good representation of the world seen through the eyes of someone with autism? So I've seen uh, some really interesting movies and TV shows that have to do with individuals with autism. And I saw a documentary, um, I saw a few documentaries about the subject. And I, I will have to say, I did write a blog article um, about how much I love the Temple Grandin movie, which is about the grand dame of autism. And I did believe that it was a very good representation. I don't believe that I have seen a bad representation of individuals with autism in the media. I know that there are plenty of people who are self-advocates who would disagree with me, but I like to take the more pragmatic approach because I don't feel like that this is something that is completely way off. And I could relate a little bit to some of the characters I've seen in Atypical, maybe a little bit in The Good Doctor. But um, I think that it is good to have realistic depictions of characters with autism. That's actually kind of why I liked Atypical so much is that it tried to give a more realistic depiction rather than, hey, here's a super genius of autism. And I know that that's trying to be very, very kind and very uh, nice and pleasant and everything, but it unfortunately uh, basically brings to mind that everyone with autism is a super genius and is a savant, and not everyone with autism has any type of savant tendencies or skills or abilities or anything like that. And I find it very interesting how we've actually had more and more types of representation with actual autistic actors. Like there was a movie that came out recently called Keep the Change, which actually got a lot of good press and good notices. 
and the two main characters in the movie who are autistic are actually played by real actors or well, a real actor and a real actress with autism. And they actually show scenes of other people with autism who they know, who they communicate with, and kind of like a support group of sorts. So I think that that is all very, very pleasant to know about. As far as the movie Loop, um, I'll have to say, maybe it's a little bit of a yes and no situation. I think that it did a very good job of, represent, of representing uh, individuals with nonverbal um, autism. I think that that is important, uh, but I'm not sure exactly how accurate it is because um, I do believe that I have seen uh, some of the traits that uh, Renee exhibits in the movie and others who are nonverbal, but it may be a little bit of a caricature. Um, I, I do believe, though, that sensory elements and that um, the ability to want to communicate, uh, the, the need to communicate, and the interest in repetitive pleasures, while that may feel a little bit exaggerated, may not be too far from the truth when it comes to nonverbal individuals with autism. So I really do appreciate uh, the questions from you, Nate. And it's time for me to go over to an inspirational AAC story. So thank you for the great answer. Very interesting. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, but that's not all, though. Um, we have a story about how LAMP language acquisition through motor planning, which is described in our show notes link, can be used to help out a nonverbal autistic individual. Meet Braden. A boy who has started kindergarten, who started late kindergarten in late 2019, who could only communicate his wants and needs through screaming, pinching, grabbing, and used a helmet so that he couldn't harm his face or hit his head. He had a limited vocabulary of signs he could do like yes and no. Using one of many iOS apps on the market to help with nonverbal communication, Braden started using the iOS LAMP Words for Life app to learn how to communicate his wants and needs through an electronic device. Through the app, he learned how to express himself through more complicated words, verbs, and phrases by using features like the Vocabulary Builder or the already default full-sequenced uh, vocabulary set and has become so expressive through the app. Well, was once an individual who only showed his angry side would be able to use words for life without assistance to find the best way to communicate to others and is actually much happier with a tool like it. His vocabulary has expanded to include a lot more words than before, and this has been since February of this year. I guess that the lesson is, it is never too late to find venues of communication that are able to give your child a more meaningful life. And when it happens, they may feel better at communication. You can read more of the story here in our show notes. 
That is a terrific story. And it just makes me thankful for all the technology uh, that we have today and that it's being put to a good use like this and not just being used for, uh, you know, videos of, of cats and, uh, and sports videos. <laughs> Before we go, we want to thank the foundation for believing in us to be able to do a podcast for any willing listeners. And because of that, we will be seeing you again with some more coverage on us and the autistic community in August and in general for more. I could fly so high, oh, like a butterfly. I fly into the air so high, oh, like a butterfly.